Now to begin, we have been working through uh, the book of Philippians. Today we are going to hit that halfway mark. We're going to finish out Philippians chapter 2. It's taking us 10 weeks. It'll probably take us 8, 9, maybe 10. Here's what I know. By the holidays, we'll be done with Philippians. Now, now you, we laugh, but here's the thing. You know, Thanksgiving is just that far away. And Christmas is just that far away. And 2023 is just that far away. But it's been a joy to work through Philippians. See what I did there? Uh, we have been talking a lot about joy as we work through this book. Now to begin, uh, in, in my old life a couple of years ago, uh, for about five years, I got to teach high school students. And my favorite thing to teach was I would teach them theology. We would do historical theology. We would do systematic theology. We would do New Testament survey. We would do apologetics. And I greatly enjoyed that. But my second favorite class that I taught to high school students was logic. I taught both formal and informal logic. And maybe you say, well, I have a little bit of an understanding of what logic is, but give me a definition. Well, here's what logic is. Logic is the study of correct reasoning and good arguments, the study of correct reasoning and good arguments. And so I got to teach high schoolers how to think well and how to argue well, and their parents loved that. They just loved it. Uh, logic, the study of correct reasoning. Now, this is just a bonus this morning, church, but in case you haven't noticed, we have a shortage of good reasoning um, in our culture because people have grown accustomed to thinking with their emotions instead of letting facts factor into their thoughts. Our emotions don't determine facts. That's not the way reality works. Remember this, we're Christians because it's true. Not because it makes us feel good, but because it's true. Because logic flows from God himself because he's logical. In fact, we think God's thoughts after him. His thinking is always correct. But however, I'll tell you all that to say this. In teaching logic, one of the sort of foundational things we would look at is definitions. Because if you're going to think through something, you have to know what terms mean. And there are many, many different ways to define a term. I want to look at just a couple this morning. We'll use the example of man. There's a formal definition, which is a dictionary definition. So I'll give you Webster. He says, a man is an individual human, especially an adult male human. Easy enough. An informal definition is just that. It's a little more informal. And so I'm going to give you Plato's definition. He said this, that man is a featherless biped. In other words, man doesn't have feathers and he walks around on two legs. Now that's not really all that helpful, is it? But hopefully you don't have any feathers and you are classified this morning as a man. Uh, now another way you can define something is by example. And I like examples. Uh, so when we're defining man, I could point to a man and say, hey, that's a man, and you have an understanding. There's an example. I could point to our worship pastor, John Bickham, and say, there's a man, or as I like to call him, the man, and you get an idea of what a man is, because examples are helpful. When I'm learning something new, I like to learn oftentimes by example. I need you to show me, walk me through it, point to it. When my kids are learning, uh, oftentimes they learn new words. And every now and then you, get them, you don't use them exactly correct. And I'll say, that's not how that word works. And they'll say, well, give me an example of that in a sentence. Now, Scripture is interesting to me. Scripture is, is full of many different types of literature. It teaches us in many different ways. Uh, the, the Bible explains the Christian walk to us uh, definitionally. 
It explains it intellectually. It teaches us emotionally what it means to serve the Lord. But also there are various pockets in the Bible where we get an example of what it means to be a Christian or to live in a sacrificial way. And so as we close out Philippians chapter 2, we're going to do exactly that this morning. We're going to look at three examples of what it means to live a Christian life, what it means to be a Christian servant. Now, obviously, Jesus is our supreme example. We look to him in all things. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. However, there, is, there are many differences between Jesus and I. But there's one biting difference is that Jesus was perfect and I am not. And so I strive to be like Christ. I will never completely fulfill that until he returns because I'll never be perfect. And I hate to break your heart, but you're not perfect either. And so sometimes it's also nice to have human examples that show us, hey, you know what? You can walk the Christian life. Even being a fallen sinner, even though you may fall and mess up, you can walk the Christian life. So this morning we look at three examples, three models that show us what it means to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so I'll give you their names as we work through them. The first one is a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. You're familiar with him, wrote Philippians. We've talked about him a lot. He's currently in prison, uh, chained to a soldier in Rome. We're going to talk about Paul. We're going to talk about another younger man by the name of Timothy, who is also fairly well known. Book Bible, two books of the Bible named after Timothy, where Paul writes and instructs Timothy. And last, we're going to mention a fellow by the name of Epaphroditus. Isn't that fun to say? Everybody say Epaphroditus. Sometimes I'm just walking around and I'll just say it because it's fun. Epaphroditus. So this morning, let's jump into it. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start off in verse 17. And we're going to see example number one. We're probably going to spend the most time on this first example. So if you're looking at your watch and looking at your notes and thinking, is he going to get through this? Know that we're going to spend more time on the Apostle Paul. So example one, Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 17. Let's read 17 and 18 together. Paul writes, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad... There's those happy words again that Paul uses all through Philippians. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Then he says, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Well, first let's ask this question. What is a drink offering? Because there's a little bit of a cultural gap here. You probably don't offer very many drink offerings. But Paul's audience, whether Jew or Gentile would have understood. What would happen is when you went to offer a sacrifice to a God and you had the animals on the altar sacrificed, often what they would do is take honey or wine and they would pour it on top of that sacrifice. And when it burned, it would release a sweet aroma or sometimes they would pour it in front of the altar. And it signified this pleasing aroma going into the nostrils of a deity. And so Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now what we see in Paul here, what he's referring to is he knows this. He knows that his life is not his own. In fact, scripture says that you were bought with a price. 
Now here Paul isn't wondering or anticipating his death in Rome because he's awaiting trial. But if you remember, we've looked at Paul believed he was going to be released. So Paul's not referring to himself as a sacrificial drink offering being poured out by an impending death. No, what Paul is referring to is where he's living at in the moment, in prison, in Rome. He is being sacrificial. He is a living sacrifice as he waits, stands trial, chained to a soldier. Now, I hear people say things like this all the time. Well, I would die for Jesus. And that's great. It's huge. But the better question is, is will you live for him? You know, it's one thing to have aspirations to die. Paul saw his life and his death too, but ultimately he saw his life as the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, I die for Jesus. Awesome. Then what's stopping you from living for him and living a life of sacrifice in the moment? Paul would write elsewhere, Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Christian, we're called to live lives of sacrifice now. Becoming a Christian is free. It doesn't cost you anything, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. Becoming a Christian is, is free. It is all by grace. doesn't cost you at all, but being a Christian Being a disciple is incredibly, incredibly costly because we're called to take up our cross and to live lives of sacrifice. And sometimes we say, well, you know what? It's hard living sacrificially. And it is. Because you know what doesn't come naturally to me? It doesn't come natural to me to put me on the back burner and to put what God wants, what my wife wants, what my kids need, what my friends need, what the lost needs, all above and in front of me. It comes so much more natural for me to think about me in every situation first. But Paul says we are called. He says I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The picture here is a sacrificial life. We're called to live lives of sacrifice. Well, that's difficult. Well, here's what I've learned. Everything is difficult. And you have to figure out which kind of difficult that you want to live with. So you can sacrifice yourself for Christ or you can sacrifice yourself for the world. Both of those are difficult in different ways and will lead you to different places. You can live a moral life and miss out on some pleasures. That's difficult. You can lead an immoral life and reap what you sow. Both are choices And both can be difficult. You can trust God in difficult circumstances. That's difficult. You can worry yourself into depression. That is also difficult. You can be faithful to church and have to say no to activities that go on on Sundays. Or you can choose to be, you know, a 25 percenter and then wonder one day why your kids don't see the value in church. That is also difficult. Everything is difficult. We have to choose our difficult. Christians are called to sacrifice. Now I want to ask you this morning, Christian, when you think about that word, does that describe some elements of your life? Now here's what I know, we don't all live sacrificially 100% all the time. And when you look deep inside as a Christian, do you see areas of sacrifice? Now if you look deep enough, you'll also see areas of selfishness. How do I know that? Because I look deep in myself sometimes and I see it. But does the word sacrifice describe you as we look at this example of Paul does it describe you 
Now hear me out on this. Many in our culture, and unfortunately I think many people in the modern American church mistake Christianity for what's been labeled moral therapeutic deism. Now those are some big words, moral therapeutic deism. What is that? Well, the term was first coined by a couple of sociologists, Christian Smith and Melina Denton, in a 2005 book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And what they did in their book is they studied all of these different teenagers in America, and they sort of, even those that claim to be Christians, and they sort of compiled um, the core beliefs of the modern American religious teenager, and they labeled it moral therapeutic deism. Now, I want to give you the five core tenets of moral therapeutic deism, and and they're printed in your worship guide there, so you can follow along with me. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, and that sounds pretty good. I think I can agree with that. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, filled it. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. God wants you to be nice. Be nice. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about myself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Moral therapeutic deism. Friends, that ain't, I know it's bad language, bad English, that ain't Christianity. Moral therapeutic deism, it's moral, it teaches me how to behave and how to be nice because we should all be nice. It's therapeutic, it makes me feel good, it's convenient. You know, when I want to go to church or when I want to worship God, it just kind of fills me with warm fuzzies down inside. Deism, there's a God. That's a nice thought because when I need him, he's there. But when I don't need him, I can do my own thing. And if I believe in there's a God, if I'm good enough, I don't have to have anxiety now because there's an afterlife. And I just get everything packaged and it just makes me feel so good. Here's a problem. That is not Christianity. But let me tell you what, this sort of mentality is so, so prevalent. I want to ask you a pointed question. When I look at my life, where do I see sacrifice? Because Christianity is a sacrifice. It calls you to sacrifice. It has always been about sacrifice. How do I know that? Because it started with a sacrifice of a pure, perfect, blemish-free, spot-free lamb that was slain for my sin and for your sin. And when Christianity is reduced to this idea that God wants you to play nice and that he's here for your convenience to solve your problems when you need him, completely soils what Christ did for us on the cross. And so if I look in my life and I don't see any area of sacrifice Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm just a moral therapeutic deist. Or maybe I simply need to repent. Paul says this in verse 17. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering 
of your faith. Paul said, I'm being poured out in sacrifice, Philippian church, on top of your sacrifice. Because the Philippian church was living sacrificially. They were amidst a pagan culture that was constantly, constantly persecuting them. And here, here is my thought. I don't know about you, but as an American Christian, I have had it pretty phenomenally easy. The worst thing that's happened to me as a Christian is a couple of people every now and then might, say, might call me a mean name. Big deal. But let me ask you this. If I am a Christian who is not living sacrificially now, what hope do I have when America becomes Rome? If I'm a Christian who's not living sacrificially now, what hope do I have when things get really difficult? Do you seek sacrifice in your life, Christian? When God asks you to do something, do you do it right away, all the way with a happy heart? Are you obedient? When God asks you to give of your time, of your finances, or to put his kingdom first, are you willing to do that? Do you make allowances in your day to spend with God and to invest in the things that are important? Because you have a very, very slim window of opportunity. Paul and the Philippian church model sacrificial living for us. Now let's go back to our text. Here we go back to this theme. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now look what he says. I'm glad. I rejoice with you all. And he says, likewise, you too be glad and rejoice with me. This theme through Philippians of joy. Now this seems absurd to so many people that when you think about a Philippian church being persecuted, you think about Paul in prison awaiting to see if he's going to be executed. How do you have joy in those moments? To me, that seems absurd. And the world and even some Christians are only happy when circumstances are good. And we lean into, as we saw last week, griping and grumbling or being resentful when things are bad. But here is what God is increasingly teaching me. And we see this in the example of Apostle Paul. For believers, when we truly seek and serve the Lord, which will involve sacrifice, we will find joy because you were made to be in Christ. Augustine wrote this. He said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Here's what I know, friends. You can get distracted with a million things, but until we settle into the idea of what God has laid out for us, and some of that's going to involve difficult things and sacrifice, but when we are in Christ and he has our attention and our devotion, you will find in you this fountain of joy that bubbles to the surface, sometimes even inexplicably. We see in Paul a model, an example of how Christians should live sacrificially. And Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He would say, be, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. And so we look to Paul, and he was just a man, friends, just like you and I. And he served the Lord in a sacrificial way. When I look at my life, do I see a life of sacrifice? So let's move on. Example number two, a guy by the name of Timothy. Let's read the text, 19 through 24. Paul says this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. 
For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now Paul is wanting, Timothy's there with him in Rome. Paul's wanting to send Timothy back to the Philippian church to encourage them, but also to get a report on them and so they can hear how Paul is doing as well. Now, who is Timothy? Well, Paul and Timothy were incredibly, incredibly close. Paul led Timothy to the Lord and Timothy became a traveling companion and just a friend to Paul. Uh, Timothy, Paul would refer to Timothy as his son in the faith. Paul led him to the Lord. And so by the time of this writing, Paul and Timothy have been serving for probably about 10 years together. Timothy was raised, he had a pagan dad, most likely a Greek, but his mom and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, were Christians. And they raised Timothy to read the Old Testament and to value Scripture. And they trained him up. They were an example, an influence in the life of Timothy. And certainly Paul would be an influence into the life of this young man as well. And so we certainly see in Timothy an example for us. Let's look at a few of the ways that Paul describes Timothy. I want you to see this first of all. Look at verse 20. I want you to see that Timothy was like-minded. It says, for I have no one like him. Now, no one like him, the original construction in the language there means equal in soul. It means a kindred spirit. It means someone that thinks like I do. I have no one like him. Paul and Timothy thought the same way. Now, why is that? Because Paul was an imitator of Christ and Timothy certainly was an imitator of Christ, but also was an imitator of Paul. And so as Paul discipled Timothy and instructed him in the faith, their thinking was brought together. And that's the goal of discipleship is duplication, replication, where other people come to have the mind of Christ. As I take on the mind of Christ and I teach that to other people, we become like-minded and the peripheral issues that really don't matter can kind of dissolve in the distance because we keep the main thing, the main thing. Timothy was like-minded and it's an example for us. We as brothers and sisters in Christ are to be like-minded. Look at the rest of verse 20. I want you to see this, that Timothy was caring. He says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, Paul knew that Timothy cared for the Philippian church just as much as he did, and they both had the hearts of a shepherd. Timothy desired to be with the Philippian people. Now, I want to ask you this. Do we have that same care and concern for one another? I certainly hope so. I I think we do because we in this room are family. But notice how Paul contrasts Timothy with some of the other preachers in Rome. Look at verse 21. He says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember back to chapter one, Paul describes some of the teachers in Rome as people that had selfish ambition. They were in it for themselves. And you know, there are still preachers today that their goal in life is to build an empire for themselves instead of advancing the kingdom of Christ. There are teachers and preachers that are, um, you know, they will say what is popular instead of what is biblical. Again, that is serving their own interest. Let me tell you this, church. If a teacher or preacher or Sunday school teacher, it kind of rhymes, if they are affirming you 
instead of telling you the truth, they don't love you. If they're affirming you instead of telling you the truth, they don't love you. Now, why is that? Because they love themselves. Because it's so much easier to tell people what they want to hear, to tell people what is popular in our culture, because if you do that, people like you. It's amazing when you tell people what they want to hear that they like you. Happens all the time, doesn't it? But I want people to love me, so I want them to tell me the truth. And so there are men in my life that I say, you know what? Speak truth into my life anytime you want to. Even if it makes me upset or angry, if you see a problem in me, I want to know. Because that's difficult to do. But Timothy, that's who he was. I want you to see what else Paul describes Timothy as a man of character. Look at verse 22. He said, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Now that term proven worth is often used of testing a metal's genuineness. It means he had exemplary character. Timothy had proven himself time and time and time again. Now, in the way things work with the Lord, you may be the most talented person in the United States or maybe you're the most talented person in the world. But if you don't have character if you don't have a heart that loves the Lord if you do all the right things but do them for the wrong reason it's a complete waste Timothy had character Paul says in verse 22 but you know Timothy's proven worth character he says how is a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel now what else do we know about Timothy well Paul describes him as a servant. Now again, we're looking at Timothy because he provides an example for us. Timothy was a servant. Now, Paul isn't saying that Timothy served him, though Timothy did undoubtedly. Timothy was Paul's faithful companion, and I think Timothy related to Paul as a father. He served him like a father. However, what Paul's pointing out, if you'll notice, he says he has served not me, but served with me in the gospel. In other words, Timothy was a servant of Christ. And so we see in Timothy this example again. We saw it in Paul. We see it in Timothy. We'll also see it in Epaphroditus that this idea of, of sacrifice, as we see Timothy as an example, do we see ourselves as servants or do we see ourselves as being served? He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. We also know that Timothy was submissive and served and loved Paul as well, like a father and a son. But here's the amazing thing about Paul and Timothy. They weren't in competition. They both saw their mission as serving Christ. You know, I think God has room for all of us in his kingdom to be a part and to take on kingdom work. And so we love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, and remember that we're in this to do the same mission and same goal. Paul goes on, verse 23. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me. And I want you to see this. As we're we're going to wrap up in a moment. I want you to see that Timothy was available. Timothy was ready to do whatever God asked him to do and whatever Paul asked him to do as well. Now, Timothy kind of put his, perhaps, his ambitions and his desires on the sideline because he saw the importance of serving with Paul and for Christ. You know, one of the biggest aspects of being used by God is being willing to simply show up. And that's exactly what Timothy was. He was available. When God prompts us to share our faith, we show up. 
When God prompts us to show compassion, we show up. When God tells us to take a moment to do whatever he's calling us to do, we show up. You know, sometimes I'll do this. I have my, maybe you do it too, where I have my agenda set, I have my itinerary laid out for the day, and then somebody wants to get in the way of that. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not what I'm supposed to be doing today. This is what I had planned to do. But sometimes what God does is he says, hey, we're flipping the script and I've put this person in your path right now and I just simply need you to show up and to remember that God sort of directs our days. Paul says in verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul was planning to visit after his release. Now, Timothy wasn't a perfect man, neither was Paul. Timothy had his shortcomings. I think one of those shortcomings in Timothy's life was he was a little insecure about his age. He was intimidated um, by his youthfulness. And so Paul would write to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, I want to read this to you and I want to encourage you, you know, our our, our younger people in this room. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, don't let anybody despise you for your age, for your youth, He says, but set the believers an example. There's that word again, example. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Tell you what, it doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you are in between. It doesn't matter how usable you feel. It doesn't matter your experience or your skill set. If you say, God, I want to be used... If, if we exemplify these, these tendencies of Timothy, like-mindedness, a caring heart, having character, being a servant, being available, God will use you. And I see this in the extremes where sometimes if we're younger, we say, well, you know what? I don't have a whole lot to offer. I don't have a lot of experience. I don't have a lot of wisdom. How can God use me? God will use you if you say, God, please use me every single time. And sometimes on the other end of life, we think, well, you know, maybe my better days are in the past or I I, I just don't have a lot to offer. Here's what I know. If you pray, God, use me, God will use you every single time. Third example, Epaphroditus. Now, I pulled a little sneaky on you here, church. I doubted that we would have the full time to get through Epaphroditus, so I didn't use any sub points here. Um, so I'm going to read it to you. We're going to make a quick comment about him and we're going to close out. And what you can do is go home, read verses 25 through 30 and say, okay, what, in what ways does Epaphroditus set an example for me as a Christian? Let me read it to you, 25 through 30. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Lots of adjectives. He says, for it's been... For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on me, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He says, I am the more eager eager to send him, therefore, that you might rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. There's that word again. And honor such man, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let me tell you what's going on with Epaphroditus here. Epaphroditus was in the church of Philippi. Philippi saw Paul's need in Rome. They knew Paul needed ministering to. Of course, he had Timothy there, but he knew, they knew Paul needed ministering to and they also knew that Paul needed some some financial help Paul didn't ask for it but the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to 
Paul to minister to his needs. Now, here's the interesting thing about Epaphroditus' journey to Rome. Think this through. You've got Paul, who's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's awaiting trial. If he gets convicted, he gets executed. Epaphroditus goes to visit. Epaphroditus is now viewed as one of his associates. Paul gets executed. Odds are really good. Epaphroditus also gets executed. And so what Epaphroditus does is he sees his life in such a way to be used, what's the word again, sacrificially for Christ. And so we see in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus this willingness to say, you know what? My life is an insignificant thing unless it's placed in the service of Christ. Now, as we look at Paul, as we look at Timothy, as we look at Epaphroditus, we see examples, human examples, men just like us, of what it means to live for Christ. And so I want to close out, I want to ask you two questions, church. Number one, who in your life right now is your example? Is there anybody that you look to and say, you know what, I want to imitate them because they sure are imitating Christ. I think we need men and women in our lives that pull us up. And if you're younger, I can't tell you how important it is to find some people that you can look to and emulate. I have some men in my life that are incredible examples to me. And they also know this, that anytime they can shine a flashlight deep into my life and say, hey, this is gross. Why don't you clean that up, Josh? And I want somebody to be able to do that. But can I challenge you this way as well? You're an example to somebody else. Somebody is watching you on the reg. Parents, for you, at the very least, it's your kids. You know, there are times where I'm glad I'm an example to my kids, and there are times where I think, man, I could have done that a whole lot better. But all day, every day, your kids are watching you. Are you living in such a way to honor Christ? Who are you being an example to? Maybe it's your coworkers, students, maybe it's your peers. Somebody is watching you all day long. There's an old quote. I know I've shared it before. Gypsy Smith. There's five Gospels. You say, wait, there's only four. He says, no, there's five. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. There's a lot of people that will never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But on the daily, somebody is reading every verse of your life. Are you living as the example that you should be? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you so much for just allowing us to be here in your house, in your presence. Lord, we're thankful for your word that it instructs us, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us, that it teaches us. But also, Lord, that you provide these examples of other men and women who are just like us that said, you know what? I'm going to wholly devote myself to Christ. Lord, may that be us as well. And Lord, I pray that as we think about sacrifice, that we would really come to understand that it's really not a sacrifice at all because of what we gain for laying our lives down for you, not just in death, but in life. Lord, that by living sacrificial lives, you fill us full of joy and meaning and purpose. And our lives look like they were made to look. Lord, help us to imitate you. Help us to imitate Paul as he imitates you. Help us to imitate Timothy as he imitates Paul. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. God, we love you. We praise you. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.